0: Okay, Brother Mark, looking forward to this. Come on up. Thank you. Let's open with prayer. Father, as we're going to your word now, we pray that you would continue to give us what we need. We thank you for the uh, teaching this morning in Sunday school. We pray that as we um, go to your word, that your Holy Spirit would give us understanding also remind us of things that we have already learned. We pray then that you would give us the wisdom to take that knowledge and apply it in our Christian lives, that we would be pleasing to you, that we might at the judgment seat of Christ hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. This is our prayer, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Um, first of all, this is exciting to get to uh, preach uh, in this sense where there's more people than I'm used to. Our church where I'm pastoring has uh, gone down in number, but just having more to preach to is exciting, especially when, as you are all in the Word. And I thought to myself, you know what, I'm used to going expositorily verse by verse through the Bible, but this is a one-time thing, so I thought, what do I pick? You got the whole Bible to pick from. So I just prayed and let the Lord guide me. And this is always find interesting because the first thing the Sunday school teacher started with. said, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Mary's Bible study is going to be in Hebrews. I'm going to be in Hebrews too. So anyway, (laughs) that's the way that goes. I asked Brother Robinson, I said, "Uh, when does your service end? He said, well, sometime between 1130, 1145. And I said, well, I'm a type A behavior, so I like to end when I'm, you know, supposed to. So if I'm supposed to cut off, just stop me. But um, he said, well, you can just go to your finished. That's not a good thing to tell me because... (laughs) <laughs> I would never be finished. Uh, that's true of most pastors. Reminds me, when I was in seminary, There was a. they told the story of this old country preacher who was, uh, it's time to preach. He got up to preach, and some little boy yelled out from the pew, Preacher, how long are you going to preach this morning? And he said, well, let me tell you, son, it depends on what my wife's fixing for dinner. If she fixes roast beef, I'm going to preach 45 minutes. If she's having fried chicken, I'm only going to preach 30 minutes. And... Uh, her, his wife yelled out we're having roast possum <laughs> with that the pastor said we'll now rise for the benediction so, Anyway, so I'm not one that usually tells jokes but I thought about that when I asked Brother Robinson how long I had uh, but we'll be in Hebrews if you'll turn now with me Hebrews chapter 10 Hebrews chapter 10 beginning of verse 21 Hebrews 10 21 and I thought about When the Bible conference comes, what I'm going to talk about, and this is a little bit related to that, so I'll try not to give too much of that away as we go through there, but it doesn't matter. I think we can go over, the. if this message was the same thing, I think we can always get something new out of it. So Hebrews chapter 10, verse 21, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. I paused there a moment. That's why I chose the song that I sang, uh, Nearer, Still Nearer. Uh, a lot of people, when they write hymns to songs, I think most of those authors didn't understand salvation of the soul. So most of them are thinking about thinking of how to draw near to God so they one day hope to be in heaven. And as in the Sunday School lesson emphasized, the hope is not that we get to heaven. The hope is when we get to the judgment seat, we hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, and enter in the joy of the Lord, which is to rule and reign in the coming kingdom. So... Um, that being understand, as I sing the song, and I hope as you heard the words, you were thinking the same thing as I am as a Christian. We're told, as James uh, tells us, draw near to God and he'll draw near to us. So as we're going through the scripture, that's what we come to church for is to draw near to him. We do that through in getting in the word. That's how we get closer to him. Um, by the way, I've, sometimes I use, I use the word near instead of nigh. Um, I have a King James in front of me. I was preaching one time. We had a visitor in church, and when we got done, she said, what version were you using? I said, well, I used the King James. She said, well, I couldn't follow you because I had the NIV. So I'm sorry if you have different translations, but I often, as I'm reading the King James, will just automatically at sight translate some of the the older English into more modern English, but... Um, hopefully we can all follow each other. I'll try to tell what verse we're in. Hopefully that'll help. But anyway, this is drawing near. We come to the word, the God by going to his word. We get closer to him. And the promise is if we do that as Christians, then he draws nearer to us. So as we look at this, we know he's our high priest. And the difference is, is, is being brought out here in Hebrews, is that in in the Old Testament, you know, they had to go, they had... The, the priest, and it was different in how things are. But now we have Jesus Christ. He's our high priest, so because of that difference, we don't have to go to some human here, as some churches believe. They still have to go through a priest at their church and go to God through him. We go directly to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why we can draw near. They couldn't go into the Holy of the Holies. We can go directly in close to God. So we draw near with a true heart. This word true in the Greek can be understood to mean sincere. In the Old Testament, we see it over and over as the prophets were being told to speak to the nation of Israel. And they they tended, I think mostly of Isaiah about this, they tended to meet. They had the solemn assemblies. They came to worship. They came to the, whether it was the tabernacle in the wilderness or the, or the temple when it was built, they came to worship, but their heart wasn't in it. They were just going through the motions. So whether it's Israel back then or us now as believers, church has to be something active that while we're sitting there, we're actually concentrating on the word, trying to think about what it says, comparing scripture to scripture, making sure that just because it's me preaching or Brother Allen or whoever's preaching, that it's what the word says. Um, Also, I also think about this. um, Most of us have a Bible that has commentary in it, whether it's Schofield or whoever Um, But to be careful to know that the commentaries are not scripture. Uh, Because some people have made the mistake they read a commentary and think that. And there's some things, as as well as Schofield was in his things, he didn't get some things right in the commentary. So we've got to be careful when it's to note the difference between scripture and a commentary. Even, I go this far, as we know that the chapter divisions and the verse divisions were later added. Now that helps us for reference. So we can say go to... Chapter 10, verse 21, so forth. But sometimes, I, an example of me in Isaiah where uh, we're told about when Isaiah is prophesying about the coming of Jesus. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. He shall be called wonderful counselor, so forth. But that's two different completely things separated by 2,000 years all smack in one verse and then part of another verse. So what I'm saying is for unto us a child is born on the Son is given, that is the first coming. The government shall be on a shoulder, won't be till the second coming. So right in the same verse is two thousand years split apart. So so I think some people do that and they get to it of chapter and think that's the end of the thought. And sometimes of course the thought keeps going and that, that can confuse us. So always to be careful to remember those things when we're studying. So now I'll try to get back on track. So we're in verse twenty two. Let us draw near with a true or sincere heart. So we got to think about when we come. That's one reason why we usually do uh, music, um, trying to set the mood, prepare our hearts um, to think about that we're coming to draw near to God. We're coming to worship and encourage one another and draw near to him. In full assurance of faith. um, This has to do with the word from the Greek that means with confidence. Confidence. and, and this is explained when we get to the parenthetical part. And if you jump down the end of verse 23, 4, which means because he, that's God, is faithful who promised. See, it says that. I changed that to who because we know God is a person. Anyway, so God promised it. He's faithful. In other words, we can count on what God said. You can be confident about it because it's God that made the promise. And God is faithful. So we don't have to wonder that if, if there's these things that God says, if you do this, you'll get this. Like he says, if you suffer with me, you'll reign with me. That's a promise based on the condition. If we meet the condition, we'll get the promise. All right, let's go on. Um, going on in verse 22. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. The word evil here means Guilty. Now, the, you, the word sprinkled, you go back to the Old Testament, they actually had to take the blood, and you won't know all this already, but they had to, you've studied it. They, sprink, they sprinkled the blood. Uh, that was back in the, in the Old Testament. It was called atonement. It was covering. Now it's different because the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is for cleansing. So we have 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the blood, different from then, where the blood of the animals covered, this is the blood that cleanses. Now, a lot of people read 1 John 1, 9, and they say that's a lost person does that to get saved. That's completely wrong, because that's for us to save people on a daily basis as we're convicted of sin. We're to confess, which means to admit to him, and we know that then he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us, not only from that sin that we were convicted of and we confess, but from all unrighteousness. I think there's lots of things we're not even aware of that we do that's displeasing to him. So this is the guilty conscience sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It makes me think of Ephesians where washing of the water by the word. In the Old Testament, the water was used. They had to go in and wash their hands. All, the, all that was for purification. The same thing. Jesus talked about, you know, washing the feet, the different things and representing of all that. So you look at the Old Testament as we look at the types, and so we understand it for us as Christians. Now, verse 23, let us hold fast, that is, tightly or firmly, the profession of our faith without wavering. The word wavering, of course, means without doubting. Uh, Doubt is the opposite of faith. The word faith you can translate either trust or believe. So the opposite is doubt. Doubt means you don't believe or you don't trust. So, it has to be faith without wavering. Let's hold fast to the profession of our faith without wavering. And why, he says parenthetically, because he is faithful that promised. He's the one that made the promise. It's God who promised, so we don't need to doubt it. Now, it's human for us to do that. And when we do doubt, we need to recognize that that's Satan trying to get us off of the truth from the word that God has promised. Verse 24, let us consider, that means think about, let us consider one another, that's other brothers and sisters in Christ, to provoke, to love and good works. I pause there a moment because the word provoke we, we usually use in, in, in relations to uh, anger, like provoke somebody to get angry. You know, you keep prodding, you keep Adam, Adam, and Adam, and then finally they explode. But it's interesting that that's the word used here in relationship to love, provoking to love so I would think instead of doing something to someone and to get them angry we should treat each other so that it produces love instead it, so that's a different thing that's what we should be doing as Christians provoke to love and to good works I won't go into a whole message on good works because that's part of what Lord willing at the Bible conference I'll do but um, but just to say this and it's something I heard Mary say one day uh, the difference between good works and bad works. Another way to say bad works are works that are good for nothing. In other words, they just don't count. Um, and I want to spend a lot of time in the Bible conference talking about exactly what is a good work and what is a bad work. Um, and we'll see if there's time today if I talk about that a little bit. But anyway, so that's what we're to try to provoke one another to do. Things. The good works are things that are pleasing to God. It's his work through us. Verse 25 not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. So we come together to worship. Uh, the word forsaking, of course, means leaving. Some people have stopped going to church anywhere. And I know, as you know, if, if this church weren't here, it's hard in the world we live in today, in the age we are, the, we're in the end of the church age, the Laodicean period, and most churches are like the Laodicean church. They have no spirituality whatsoever. It's hard to find a church that's in the word. You can go to a lot of churches and sit there and not get any word. Some of them don't even read the scripture. Some of them, if they do, it's just the scripture reading, and that's it. So it's frustrating. But to assemble together, even if it's not in a church building, get together with some other Christians and, and assemble together in the word of God and encourage one another. But some people have left it. You might know people who had not been in church in years. It's not because they're not able. They just gave up going or whatever. So... Uh, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, even in the beginning, in the first century, in the early church, some had already quit going. But exhorting, that's the old English word for encouraging. Encouraging one another, and that's other believers, of course. It's, it's hard to encourage a lost person. I don't, I realize that it's possible. In today, in the world we live in and where more of the world has gotten into the church and more churches are worldly than spiritual, that a lost person might wander into a church. You know, why a lost person would come to church, I don't know. But, um, but if they're there, um, the, the message is still the same. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's the message to the lost person. But for the rest of us who are already saved, we don't need to hear that message over and over again. Every sermon, like it is in most churches, we need to be in the Word. The responsibility of the pastor is to feed the sheep so we can grow, and as we go out in the world, we come in contact with people who need to know the Lord in, in, a, in, in a spiritual sense, so they're our believers. But here we go, and again in verse 25, so it says, but exhorting, that's encouraging one another, so all their brothers and sisters in Christ... And so much the more as we see the day approaching. And I always like to say the day approaching because it's a specific day. It's the day when our Lord returns. as We'll be at the judgment seat of Christ and we'll give an account. So that's the only time we have until then. Now we might, we know that any time we could be, God will take us either through the interim of death or for life at the rapture. But in either case, that day is approaching nearer and nearer, especially nearer now than when Hebrews was written, so about 2,000 years later. So it's definitely getting closer. We need more encouragement. In this world we're living today, you can turn on the TV and you can turn on the radio, and you get the opposite of encouragement. You get discouragement. So we need to get together. We need to be in the Word and encourage one another. And, all, you know, it's nice to tell somebody their dress looks nice and their hair looks nice and all. That's encouraging, but that's not, that's not that kind of encouraging that makes people feel good, of course, even if you're not being wholly sincere about it. But. <laughs> but, but, but the encouragement is in the word. It's all there. Whether it's somebody who's mourning the loss of a loved one, and we go to the scripture for comfort. But the scripture has everything we need if we just go to it. So, encourage. All right, now, verse 26. For if we sin willfully, I remember in seminary I had a lot of discussions with People about this, and there's a lot of churches who have different, if they even bother to study it. A lot of people, if they don't quite get something, they just skip over it. You know, that's easier. Uh, preachers just pick another scripture to preach on. But A lot of people won't preach on this particular verse. If we sin willfully, after that we've received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. All right, what is sinning willfully? Um, some people, which I don't believe this, but some people say that sinning willfully is a, a sin that a Christian uh, deliberately chooses to do. Well, most of our sins are deliberately chosen. I mean, like, except for something we don't, might not know, we're unaware of. But the idea, and this goes along with a lot of the Greek words, this was brought out in Sunday school. When you look at the tense of the words, and often the, the verbs are active, which means, or present tense. If it's, Present tense means it's, it's ongoing. So this is somebody who, a Christian, who it's been pointed out to them about a particular sin, and they choose willfully to continue in that sin, whatever it is. So that is by definition if we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of the truth. In other words, we've gone to the Word, and the Word says, this is sin, and that Christian, who would then by definition be a carnal Christian, because they're shaking their fists at God and saying, I don't care what you tell me, I'm going to continue in this. So that's to get that. If we sin willfully after that we receive the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. Now in the Old Testament, they had the animals that were sacrificed. Jesus Christ was sacrificed once for us, the blood is on the mercy seat. We go first John 1 9. The carnal Christian who refuses to admit to God that what they're doing is sin, then that blood that this would mean no more sacrifice for sin. That Christian is going with sin that's not being taken care of. It'll be taken care of at the judgment seat, but you know, when they hear something other than well done, they'll either depart from me, ye that work iniquity, for I never knew you. And that doesn't mean they depart to hell. They're still in heaven, of course, they're still saved. First Corinthians says, yet so is through fire. But they but it is, it is the salvation of the soul that they will lose, and they'll not get to rule and reign. They won't get that inheritance that we were talking about in Sunday school. So, here we see, um, there remains no more sacrifice uh, for sin, verse 27, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation. All right, because we understand the salvation of the soul, we know about rewards. So, we know the judgment seat of Christ. Excuse me. We as Christians, because we know the judgment seat of Christ, we're aware of the fact of what's going to happen there. We have to give an account of the things we do, uh, as it says in Second Corinthians, chapter five, the things done in our body, whether to be good or bad. So we're going to be judged according to those works. And in Hebrews chapter four, it specifically says. Uh, where it says the word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, even to the dividing of the spirit and the soul, the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So that's basically when we talk about what's a good work and a bad work. It goes back to our intents. You know, somebody else might know, know that, but God knows exactly. We get to the done of Christ. He knows the motive behind an action that's done. Um, so the, re- the the point being, let's say two two Christians do the exact same thing. Maybe they have um, um, what you call—I don't forget what what the technical term is—but extra money that they don't need to live on. It's just extra money. They have it set aside in case they need it for a rainy day. But so they have that, and they decide there's a charitable organization, and they like to contribute a little more. So they do that. And two Christians in the same position who both give the exact same amount. To the charitable organization, the one Christian is specifically doing it so they get their name recognized and up on a they get a building named after them or some something or a pew with their name on it or something. The other is doing it where Jesus said, "Don't let the right hand know what the left hand is doing." The one who got is doing it for the name, and God knows the intent of why we do something. That won't count as a good work. It's the exact same thing. They're both Christians doing the same thing. One Christian's doing it to get recognition. As Jesus said, they already got the reward. It's the name they get up on the plaque. The other Christian is just doing it. They're not trying to do it to get recognition for it. So I think that's something we often don't think about. We think about good works as doing good things and bad works are sins. But bad works can be good things that don't count because they're us doing it instead of God doing it. So I don't know if that can be some food for thought for you. Anyway, in verse 27, again... Uh, By the way, let me back up because I forgot something I wanted to mention in verse 25 about sins. And we often don't think about but there are sins of commission and sins of omission, sins to commit, sins we do. We often think of sins of commission, but there are sins of omission. One of them is actually what verse 25 was talking about, something we're supposed to do that we don't do. is called a sin of omission. So for Christians who have quit going to church, they quit assembling, they're not going, you know, assembling with others to encourage one another, that's sin of omission. So that's a particular one mentioned in verse 25 as we think about this whole thing, but it could be in a number of things. All right, back to verse 27. So we talk about this certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation. So we know our our works are going to be tried at the judgment seat of, prior, uh, judgment seat of Christ. It's called the baptism of fire. The works are tested. We know from 1 Corinthians um, chapter 3 that The works that remain, that that which comes through the fire, like the gold, silver, and precious stones, then there's rewards for that. If it's like the wood, hay, and stubble, it burns up. Those works don't count. Just like I gave the example, the person gave the same amount of money, but the one did it for their own. That would be a work that burns up through the fire. But here's the judgment seat of Christ. And this is what it's talking about, the judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversary. Some people think that means that the... The carnal Christian gets devoured. No, 1 Corinthians 3 says it's, it, they're saved, yet so is through fire. Somebody told me once an example. A man realizes his house is on fire. And by the time he wakes up and realizes it, he doesn't have time to get any of the things he has in his house. He has time to get out himself. And he gets out and his whole hole burns up and he, he suffers the loss of everything that he had. Yet he himself is saved, and that's that verse, yet as through fire. So the judgment seat of Christ, that to me is an example of a Christian who gets there, who's lived their whole life for themselves. God wasn't included in it. Every work was for themselves, and and the works go through the fire, and they themselves are saved. They'll spend eternity with God, but no reward. So here's the fiery indignation. All right, now verse 28. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Now, back to under the law, if somebody did something against the, the laws that were given, in most the cases, the penalty was death. It's pretty severe. You know, if they broke the Sabbath, the man who picked up sticks on the Sabbath day was stoned to death. There's no question about it. As long as two or three witnesses agreed that that's what they saw that person do, and there was no question. They just got stoned to death. Now he's comparing that, if that's what it was in the Old Testament, verse 29, of how much more, how much sorer punishment, suppose ye, shall he that thought, be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified, an unholy thing. Let's pause there. Somehow people were reading their study along the scripture, and they get to that verse, and they say, oh, that's back to the lost people again. No, it's not. (laughs) How can it be the lost people? It says, wherewith he was sanctified. Lost people aren't sanctified. That's us. We're sanctified. That is, although there's the process of sanctification, which is, again, present tense, which may or may not be subjunctive as um, was preached in Sunday school process of sanctification in our Christian lives. But this is something that happened the moment we trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. We were set apart. We're no longer lost. We're saved now, spirit salvation. So this is a Christian who is doing this. They're, they're saying to God, I don't care that you died on the cross for me and shed your blood for my sins. I, I, you pointed out the sin. I'm going to continue in it. That is, they're trotting underfoot the Son of God. And they count the blood of the... Um, Covenant, an unholy thing, going on in verse 29, and hath done despite to the spirit of grace, because it was God's grace that we were saved anyway. So that's what a Christian is doing in that sense. Verse 30. So that would be a carnal Christian. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongs to me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. So everything's going to be taken care of. Um, It's... These scriptures are quoted in the the Old Testament, and are uh, quoted from the Old Testament, I should say. But we we know that's what God says. We know these that it's He's going to take care of it. He's going to pay. Um, make the, and so we go on in verse 30, and again the Lord shall judge His people. Um, so you know, you person said, well, who is that? Is that the lost people? No, this the lost people. Are raised at the you know, you the first resurrection, the second resurrection, the second resurrection is at the end of the millennial kingdom. All the lost are raised, cast into the lake of fire, but before they're cast in, they're judged. And they're cast into the lake of fire. This is this is not what this time talking about. They're in the lost people. Alright, he'll judge his people. This is us will at the judgment seat of Christ be judged. Verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. When we understand what the judgment seat of Christ is about, we understand verse 31. You know, Romans says we've not been given the spirit of, uh, of bondage again to fear in Romans chapter 8. And Paul, when he's teaching that, as he's inspired by God, all the word is inspired. You know, a lot of people misunderstand that. It. It's not that we're afraid we get there and, and says you're no longer my child and you can't be in heaven anymore. Because our salvation is based on the Lord Jesus Christ who gave his life for us. And there's nothing can take that away. That is for sure. We will be forever with him. But what happens when we get there is based on what we've done as Christians. That's what this is about. It's a fearful thing if we end up falling into the hands of the living God, so we need to take care of it now, verse thirty two But call to remembrance the former days in which after you were illuminated, ye endured a great flight of affliction. Now back, if you think this doesn't happen to much of us anymore, but in the early church, when these people were first the first believers, um, they had a lot of difficult things that happened to them. Uh, you know, when we talk about persecution today probably I think the the most persecution you might get is somebody saying, you go to what church? <laughs> you believe that? Or isn't that some kind of cult? I mean, that might be the most persecution we get. Most people could care less what you believe. They don't even ask you. I always get excited if somebody asks me because um, that means I get to tell them. But I try to be careful, though, of how much I tell them because usually uh, they'll get turned off right away. <laughs> but in verse 32, so we see then they had a lot of affliction. You know, back in the early church, I think particularly of Nero, if you go to the Colosseum, and many of you have probably been to Rome and visited, um, it's amazing, 2,000 years it's still standing. It's not like it looked like 2,000 years ago, but you can tell still tell what it was. The statue is gone that they built of Nero. When you study the book of Revelation, and get to Revelation chapter 13. I told Brother Robinson, it's my favorite subject in the Bible is, is prophecy. But it says you can figure Here is wisdom to figure the number of the name, and it's 666, and you figure that all out. And what you come to realize is that the mind that Nero had is the same kind of mind the Antichrist will have when he comes back to life in the middle of the tribulation period. That's when he becomes the beast. Satan literally incarnates him as he becomes the beast, and it's the same mind that Nero had. So what Nero was doing to Christians in the first century in the Colosseum, is that's the way that the tribulation saints will be treated during that time. Of course, the church will have been raptured out. When you get raptured out, these are people during the tribulation period that that talks about. But anyway, in the early church, they had lots of afflictions that they endured. Verse 33, partly whilst you were made a gazing, st- um, gazing stock, both by reproaches that was the old English word for sufferings, and afflictions, and partly whilst you became companions of those that were so used. In other words, not everything happened to every one of them, but all the early church knew of somebody who was suffering some type of persecution for being a Christian. Verse 34, for ye had compassion of me and my bonds. People argue about who who wrote Hebrews. Um, I remember in seminary, um, they said, well, it couldn't have been Paul which to me, this, this particular verse makes me think it's Paul. Um, Paul always, mo- the custom was in that day when they wrote a letter, their name was at the beginning. In the beginning of this one, it doesn't say Paul, it says God. And that the, the Greek here is a higher educated level than, than Paul, is why they argue it couldn't have been him. Anyway, it doesn't matter to me because all scripture is inspired by God, so it doesn't matter who the human author is. To me, it's all still from God. So. Uh, but it makes me think of Paul here because he's in prison. And you know they had compassion on him. So whoever it is writing this, it was somebody that they had compassion for. I was thinking too of a conversation I had in seminary. Um, they were, and most most of the people going to seminary are studying to get master of divinity degree to become a pastor. And they said, "Well, how can you prove the Bible is the word of God?" And so I went to first, uh, excuse me, second um, Timothy chapter three, verse sixteen. And said, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and so forth. And they said, well, you can't use the scripture to prove the scripture is the, the word of God. And I said, I just stopped talking at that point because I realized there was nothing I could say. If if a person wasn't by faith going to accept the scripture, you, you could talk to your blue in the face trying to tell them that the Bible is the word of God and it wouldn't matter. Uh, so... It's sad, but I stopped talking because I thought about Jesus saying, don't cast your pearls before the swine. Now, here's a bunch of seminarians getting master's degrees to become pastors, which is the saddest of all, because most of them did become pastors, but anyway, who are not believing the Bible's the word of God. And I knew if I talked to many further where they didn't recognize the Bible's the word of God, it would be taking, like, pearls... And putting in front, pigs would just tramp over those pearls because they wouldn't recognize their pearls. They wouldn't recognize any value. There are Christians and sadly pastors who don't recognize the Bible for what it's worth. So that's it's just really sad. I talked to a pastor in Florida once who said, Oh, I believe the Bible's inspired. But I said, he said, I believe all books are inspired, like an author writes a book and you go buy it and you read it. And he believed there was no difference in that Greek word, God breathed, which is what the word inspired is. But anyway. I keep getting off. Do you want me to stop at 11.30? Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'll go a few more minutes. Then. All right. So um, let me get back where we are here. Um, Robert and Lisa, before they moved to Denver, uh, were at um, the church I pastor. And they, Lisa always said I chased rabbits a lot, so I often forget where I'm going. So anyway, <laughs> I heard Mary laugh. So. <laughs> 30, thank you. All right, for he had compassion of me and my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and enduring substance. You know, even the things that they suffered, they realized that what was in heaven is far better. You know, we don't suffer anything like they did back then. You know, we're not fed to the lions. We're not burned at the stake in the in the, there were lots of martyrs in the early church even beyond the first century as you read the history of the church so we don't experience those. we can come to church today nobody cares we're here there were people for this when the soviet union before it broke up there were a lot of people who it was illegal to worship and they're mostly russian orthodox but they still wanted some of them to worship but they had to meet what they called underground um... when i uh, went to visit russia Um, I found out even though it's when it split up and became the independent Baltic states and Russia was itself. um, I was in St. Petersburg, and you get to see all those elaborate cathedrals, and they're really beautiful if you haven't seen them outside and inside, very elaborate. There are no pews, but even still, they can worship now, but they only come at Easter and Christmas, and they have a long service. They say the service goes on hours, and people pack in there just just barely room to stand, and they stand for hours to worship. So I thought that was amazing. But anyway, we don't have any kind of persecution like then, but they did. But he was saying just think about the difference. Everything here is temporary. That's hard for us to think about when we're going through it, right? Because we still have testings in this life. There's still hard times we go through. But it's just a short time if we can remember and keep in mind the coming millennial kingdom, verse thirty-five. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. So that confidence goes back to that same word that we saw um, when we started this morning, where it said in verse twenty-two, "full assurance." That's the same Greek word. So, so cast not or cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. So keep trusting. Um, As Christians, keep trusting so that we can hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Verse 36, for ye have need of patience that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. Remember what was taught in Sunday school? It kept mentioning the promise. The promised land is a type, not of heaven, but of the kingdom of heaven. It's a type of the millennial kingdom. It's ruling and reigning. That's the inheritance, but we can be disinherited. Again, for people who've never heard this, they probably think, what in the world am I talking about? I'm not talking about our salvation. We still get to go to heaven. We'll still be with God. But the inheritance is if we get to rule with him. So this is the promise in verse 16. Verse 37. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. And that's quoted from Habakkuk. You can, uh, We won't turn there now. But if you in Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, you'll see... Almost word for word, it's translated from the uh, Hebrew there instead of the Greek here, but we're almost word for word. The will not tarry means will not delay. Now think about this, was written almost 2,000 years ago. Think, I think about Peter who said, In the last days, scoffers shall arise, saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, think about it, because all of you know this is true. There are all kinds of people today scoffing or mocking at, at someone who believes in the second coming and saying, where is the promise? And they say, everything's continued on They say there have been people talking about his second coming over and over for all these years. It's been 2,000 years, and he still hasn't come. Here it's written in Hebrews, he will not tarry, and it's been 2,000 years. Well, of course, he explains why but he you know because he gives the time tale of god that a thousand years is one day and one day is a thousand years so if you think about it in god's terms it's been less than 48 hours think about that it's been less than 48 hours and think about how much closer we are now they were in the beginning of the fifth day we're in the end of the sixth day so in comparison we're like seconds away from the end of this age all right verse 38 now the just shall live by faith um, some people get this all messed up, and this is part of what I want to do in the Bible conference. Um, you look at words like death and life and living and all that, but sometimes we don't look at it and say, okay, now wait a minute, is it physical life? Is it spiritual life? Is it solical life? What is it talking, what's the context? There's a lot of people look at it, and if you think about it and you ask, okay, um, in most cases it's not physical life because that doesn't affect you know, when you look at the scripture, we have to see what is it talking about? What is the reference? What is the context? So I won't go into all that now. But now the just shall live by faith. But, he, uh, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Now, that phrase, saving of the soul where it's literally mentioned. only happens three times in the Bible. And then, I don't know if you're like me, but I have easy ways to memorize things. Um, there were some good things about when I was growing up that came out of... Uh, my parents didn't go to church until I was 11. But before that, I think my mother, since there were six of us kids, so she could have a free babysitter. There was that one week during the summer where the churches would have vacation Bible school. school, So she would send us... so have six kids go to Bible school, she could have some time to herself. Um, but anyway, while we were there, I learned, like, the song, you could learn the books about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know, and so forth. So I memorized that. That helped me always in finding a reference in Bible uh, things. But here's the way I say this, because the three places where Salvation of the Soul is mentioned, they're in the Bible. They happen to be in, in the books that follow each other. So if you can remember Hebrews, James, and 1 Peter, they're right one right after the other. And you can remember the numbers, because in Hebrews it's chapter 10, we just saw it. In James it's chapter 1, and in 1 Peter it's chapter 1. So we're going to go to those other books in a second. But let's look at it. It says the saving of the soul. So we're almost out of time. So let's go ahead to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 19. James 1, 19. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, that's us, right? Martin Luther, if you studied, most of you probably studied church history, which was the, the whole reason we're called Protestant, is because it comes with the word protest, and he protested against the Catholic Church, which was is the, the first Roman church when um, Constantine marched the soldiers um, through the water and pronounced them all baptized, and that started the church state thing, so the Roman church, so that was Catholicism. And it wasn't until Muhammad broke off in in 622, the early 7th century, and that was Islam. And then in the early 11th century, like in the 10 hundreds, is when the Orthodox churches broke off. But basically it wasn't until 1517, the early 16th century, Martin Luther protested against the Catholic Church because he didn't believe salvation was by works. Well, he was right about that, right? but then he because of that he was confused and didn't understand why he couldn't he couldn't he didn't like James he called it an epistle of straw of course in german he called it that but he said he didn't like it cuz it contradicted romans romans said we're we're saved it's it's by faith and james is talking about faith without works is dead and he's he got all confused by it, but once we understand this is for us who are already saved, it's not talking about salvation of the spirit, it's tel- talking about salvation of the soul, which means it's rewards, so keep that in mind, so it's not talking lost people, which most of the scripture isn't, but verse 19, wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath, um, that... Uh, Swift to hear and slow to speak, that's hardest for preachers to take because we, I don't know about you, Brother Robinson, but I I like to talk real, um, really um, just talk a lot. I have to restrain myself. When somebody asks a question, I try to answer only what they ask because I can give too much of an answer and that, that can, the person who's thinking about something and God's preparing their heart and then you, I like to give too much sometimes, so I have to be careful. All right, swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man works not the righteousness of God. So that wrath doesn't, isn't what God wants. Verse 21, wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. A lot of older English here. We don't even use some of these superfluity, you could say overflowing. Naughtiness could be wickedness. Although a lot of people, when they hear the word wicked, they think of heinous crimes, but anything that's contrary to God's will is in his mind wicked because it's not his will. So, sins of omission, people who have forsaken, uh, have left off going to church and are not assembling together, anything were to lay apart all of that. Lay apart's pretty weak in the translation, it's a little stronger than that. We need to <coughs> throw it away. And then sometimes somehow it creeps back and we've got to keep doing it. So it's not something that we throw away once and it's gone. We constantly, every day as Christians, have to work at this and keep throwing that off. All right. It says, and receive with meekness the engrafted word. I always think of people who are botanists and work with plants and try to splice the plants together and get... I guess they did oranges and tangerines and got tangelos and tried to get watermelons that don't have seeds because it's more fun to eat a watermelon without all the seeds. You know? So they work on doing all... Well, this word engrafted, you talk about plants. The engrafted word, which is able... He's talking to, to save people, which is able to save your souls. So I know you already know what all this means. But we're already saved, but this is the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. And real quick, we'll finish with First Peter... First Peter chapter one. First Peter chapter one, and we'll start in verse, I guess verse three. Uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively or living hope. And there's that word hope again. Uh, By the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance. Now this inheritance it says is incorruptible different from an inheritance in this life where some people get an inheritance, uh, but it's called corruptible, which means we won't take it with us. It's only for this life. This is an inheritance that's incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. It's there for us. All Christians, it's there for us. Not all of us will get it, but it's all there for us. Who are kept by the power of God through faith To salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What salvation don't we already have revealed? It's the salvation of the soul. That will be revealed at the judgment seat of Christ. We don't know that yet. We know we're saved. We know we're going to heaven. So that's spirit salvation. This we don't know yet. Notice it says, verse 7, that the trial, that word, testing of your faith, that's what happens at the judgment seat of Christ, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found in the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So that appearing is the end, by the end of the judgment seat, because that's where he comes, the revelation. This is not the rapture. Verse 8. Whom having not seen, ye love, and whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, that's our faith right now as Christians, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith. The word end means goal or objective. As Christians, a lot of Christians don't know what the hope is because they don't know what the goal is. What is the goal? What is the objective of our continuing to be trusting in our Christian lives? It says it right here, the salvation of your souls. Brother Robinson. That was was flying through, wasn't it? I tried to go slow. (laughs) (laughs) He tried to go slow. Okay, well, we appreciate that, too. <laughs> Can't imagine what it would have been if it had been going fast. <laughs> I only—I caught up on this one thing here. Verse 22, let us draw near. But verse 39 says, but we are not of them that draw back. You can draw near or you can draw back. That, that's pretty much the whole lesson, isn't it, right there. And it all wraps up with the whole idea of the saving of your soul. So, what a lesson. What a lesson.